Welcome to Let's Talk Talk, a podcast about language science for people who aren't linguists. Let's learn about why we talk the way we do with Let's Talk Talk. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Let's Talk Talk. Today, we have Chris Tatum from The Cross-Examined Life, one of my new favorite podcasts. I'm a dedicated listener, and I'm very excited to have him on the show to talk to us about the art of arguing and the art of disagreement. Chris, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Seth. Thanks so much for having me here. <laughs> fantastic. So, Chris, can you talk to us a little bit about what in the world Cross-Exam is? Cross-exam is a format of questioning that lawyers use in the courtroom when they're trying to get the truth about a situation. We've all heard witnesses on the stand talk about uh, something that they've experienced, something that they've seen, and then we've all seen those witnesses questioned in a more hostile or aggressive way to see if what they say they saw is actually what happened. And that's what cross-exam is. So cross-examine life draws from that. Excellent. If I understand it, using cross-exam in sort of an everyday discussion does what to average disagreement? It offers the opportunity for the issue to be brought out in a more explicit way. Mm-hmm. So I think what happens, and you see this happen in many times in a court case, that there's a lot of things on the edges of the case. There's a lot of peripheral things, some things of arguable relevance, some things that don't matter. A lot of things that are discussed. But if you look at what happens when a witness is cross-examined, only the most essential points that that witness has to bring to the case are examined. Only the most salient points are addressed and challenged. The attempt is to see if that witness's description or position stands up to scrutiny. And so the idea is that by kind of asking these probing, challenging, testing questions, we can get a better sense of, is this thing that's being asserted actually true? And so I think if we could employ some of the elements of cross-exam in everyday conversation, we might get better at disagreeing with one another. I have a sense for a lot of reasons that we're not very good at all at disagreeing around especially controversial viewpoints. Absolutely. And, And something you said a second ago, where you said that cross-exam typically brings out the more salient points in a conversation. I've heard a few people not like the cross-exam format because they feel that it's it's just poking holes in the argument, like a very Socratic way to just poke holes and then never come to any conclusion. And I would say that that's not what cross-exam does. There are lots of skeptics that, that say that, and I was wondering if you could clarify the difference between cross-examining someone and just poking holes in their argument just to do it. I think that when done well, a cross-exam really has two purposes and objectives. And one of those is focusing the conversation around the most relevant points. Take, for instance, if you were interviewing someone who saw a car accident, you might ask them to describe what it is they saw, and they would talk about lots of things related to that car accident. They might talk about the person's injuries. They might talk about who they called afterwards to report it to. They might talk about how they felt. Really, only a few of those things that they say are going to be relevant to the case at hand and are going to help the police determine how this happened and whether or not there's criminal conduct afoot. And it's going to help the courts determine, you know, who might be financially at fault. The goal of cross-exam in that situation would be to say, okay, granted you saw all those things that we just heard about, but let's talk about the things that are going to make a difference in this case. And so in everyday conversation where we are passionate sometimes so passionate about lots of different issues. We get caught up. We get excited. 
we get passionate about all these different areas and things that they make us think about and feel and that we want to talk about. But really, I think, I would argue, that only some of those things are actually relevant to the issue, Mm. you know, are only relevant to the issue going forward. And so people could have lots of ideas about, let's say, healthcare, for instance. People could have lots of feelings about what they think healthcare should be or could be. But at the end of the day, the Supreme Court or another branch of our government has to answer the question, do people have a fundamental right to healthcare? And if the answer is yes, then one thing happens. And if the answer is no, then another thing happens. You can't really do anything else intelligently around that issue until you've answered that first question. And that's Mm. what I would say is probably the hardest question to answer. And so cross-exam kind of focuses you towards that one issue and says, you know, let's put aside your feelings about if it would be nice to have healthcare and let's focus on the issue does one have the right as a human being to have healthcare? Right. Because once you solve that, then you can solve all the other things. And the second thing I would say cross-exam does is, as you've correctly identified, it does serve to identify problems with an argument. And I would just say, I see that the way a hot air balloon pilot sees a pre-flight inspection. They want to know about every single hole in their balloon because it makes a difference as to whether or not their product is going to fly or fall. Sure. I am right there with you. I think that ultimately it's good. It's easier to progress if you are able to change your mind. And if you're not willing to change your mind, then you don't really hold a very steadfast argument. So the more holes you poke into it, like on your show, at the end of it, you give them a chance to see if they've changed their mind. This most recent one was the closest I've seen so far to where he said there was an aspect of it he had not considered yet due to the cross-exam format that he has to then adjust and sort of bring about it like an all-encompassing, you know, ideology on whether or not corporal punishment should uh, exist at all, public exactly. or private. So it's it's interesting, and I, I I agree with you, and I think that it's very difficult to implement cross-exam in just an everyday conversation without <laughs> enraging your partner. And I'm wondering if you have any insight on how to go about talking to people without immediately instigating an emotionally charged, an emotionally charged uh, argument that leads to nowhere. That's an excellent question and has actually come up a number of times in, shall we say, conversations between my wife and I, um, because she is not minded the way I am and she doesn't appreciate uh, cross-exam the way I do. I think that she has helped me see that for many people, they're put on edge when they hear the aggressive questions coming. She's helped me identify that I run towards that and I eagerly embrace those challenging questions, but that that is a, that kind of makes me an outlier. And so for the rest of the world, I think I've learned that I really have an obligation to clue them in that that's where I want to go. I suppose this could be an awkward shifting of gears in a conversation, but I think it can be really useful. And because it's useful, I'm going to say it's necessary. And so if you find yourself in a conversation with someone where, let's take, for instance, the healthcare example, they're saying, oh, but of course this law has to pass because people just have a right to healthcare. I think you could take a beat and respond to them and say, I heard what you just said about everyone having a right to healthcare. Would you mind if I asked you a number of questions about that? Because I have a lot of conflicting 
conflicting ideas about that, and I want to better sort it out. And you might even put them on notice even more, too, that, you know, some of these questions might be especially challenging or they might make you feel uncomfortable. But I think if you'd be willing to answer them, it'd help me better understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. No, I, I like that because I think the problem is that most of us in an argument want to win and want to yell our opinions over someone else. And with the cross-exam format, the idea is to ask questions about someone else's argument so that they question their validity themselves. I think it's disarming once they allow you to do it. And it's very interesting to see that happen because it's so difficult to yell your opinion over theirs and feel like you've won something. Absolutely. And I think this is a great place, if I may draw a distinction, since this is a podcast about talking and about words, uh, between the idea of an argument and a fight. And I think that we've grown accustomed to fighting and we've grown really bad at arguing. And I think we need to flip that paradigm on its head and embrace arguments and become better at them. And we need to let go of fighting and realize how detrimental that is to uh, this project of being human that we're all endeavoring upon. Sure. And I, I actually, something that I find pretty interesting is that you differentiate the word argument and fight because usually in people that speak English, saying to fight is equivalent to argue because if we have this sort of conceptual metaphor called the container metaphor. And what it does is it says that anytime there is something that is not happy and that there, if there's a disagreement, if there's a conflict, then it is battle. Right. And it's very right. strange because not every culture does this. Not every culture believes that arguments are fighting. So it's interesting that you use that to your advantage to differentiate that to try to take back the word argue. I don't know. I like that. I think that's pretty so cool. So if I could say a little more about that, some of this stems from a little bit of background that I have in computer science and programming. Um, I did a lot of that more when I was little and, you know, basic and QBasic, things like that. But sure. when you read the sort of instructional manuals, as some nerdy 11-year-olds do, about such programming languages, you see that they identify the sequences of thought, for lack of a better word, that a computer goes through to arrive at a certain output as arguments. And so that can't possibly have a negative connotation, certainly not an emotional connotation because it's a computer sort of uh, working through the process. But there's you know certain arguments that have to be present in each sort of string of code for the computer to follow the logic and get to the ultimate result that you're looking for. And so maybe that sensitized me from an early age that an argument is nothing more than a building block. And hopefully that building block gets you to a certain output. But it's neither a bad nor a good building block. It's neither emotional or unemotional. It's, it's simply something that is built to further an outcome. Sure. And uh, to, to clarify a little bit, you, you're talking about a couple different types of arguments, but then but then sort of assimilating them into one to, for, as an analogy. In, in linguistic syntax, linguistic syntax, descriptive syntax has arguments as well. Just it's the thing that uh, connects to the other thing, right, to build something else. But typically when we say we're in an argument, we're... <laughs> People don't picture that, the logical sort of syntactic building block formula they think yelling at each other. So it's cool that yeah. you're clarifying on that, that, that you're trying to assimilate those two together to make it a logical thing that you can fix, that you can come to a conclusion on, as opposed to a futile effort. I'll never I, forget the look on my wife's face the day that she said, you know, but but we're in an argument right now. And she was kind of implying that that was a bad thing. <laughs> and I was like, but we're in an argument right now. And I was implying that that was a good thing. Right, we like, exactly. legitimately understood for the first time that we differ on our appreciation of that moment. <laughs> I don't know. No, that's cool. No, that's exactly right. I was going to say, I was going to use an example. I have some, uh, a family member that typically gets super stressed out if there's any type of debate, 
even if it's relatively civil because they believe it's going to just erupt into some kind of unforgivable lash out sort of situation that doesn't always happen but people become so uncomfortable with talking to each other and debating in such a way that you don't have to leave uh, hating each other for it and I find it very strange that that keeps persisting and that's why I like your show so much because it sort of teaches me I'm not I'm not different than any of these people I obviously argue just like anyone else I dig my heel in but I would like to think that I would ask more questions than the average person and listening to the show your show specifically has taught me a lot of things about sort of how to formally do that in such a way that it doesn't cause some kind of futile effort you know yeah I'm really glad to hear that I'm glad it's having such a great effect you know I often think about those three words that you're just talking about argument debate and fight and I do distinguish them uh, Hmm. somewhat you know sharply in my mind and I I think that an argument is where you're putting forth a position and you're open to being proved wrong although you suspect that you're right Mm -hmm. conversely I think a debate is where you're listening to the other person but you feel that you must win and I feel like a fight is where you are no longer listening to the other person you only feel that you must win and you do whatever it takes to win whatever that means yeah no I think that you're you're <laughs> you're sort of on a philosophical level on that one categorizing those three distinctions I like that it's cool it's a good way to um, parse it out conceptually let me pivot you over a little bit to the actual use of the the type of language use that you use on your show in cross exam and I know that because it's sort of litigious and we're sort of always thinking about sort of legalese and and how lawyers talk in courtroom settings, I'm wondering if cross-exam uses any types of grammatical structures that you're overtly aware of that are manipulative to get a certain answer, or is it designed to be as clear and unarbitrary as possible so that you get an unbiased answer? And I know that's a kind of a loaded question, so take that as you will and answer it as appropriately as possible. Now, it's a really great question that demonstrates a lot of insight, both with what cross-exam is and what I'm trying to do on my show. And more than anything else, that question gets at the heart of why my show will never truly be a cross-exam. Because as you said, yes, the role of cross-exam is to manipulate the person on the witness stand into saying precisely what you want them to say and nothing more. My show, Cross-Exam in Life, derives some elements from that, but is not designed to make any guest feel manipulated or taken advantage of or like their opinion wasn't put forth in the best possible light. In fact, as I edit, I use as my guiding light the idea that I want to make my guest sound as smart and intelligent and well-spoken as possible. Um, and so I'm always trying to you know, make their argument and position sound as coherent and clean as I can. In cross-exam, it's a fair criticism that it is somewhat manipulative. And there are these grammatical structures where basically you're not asking a question. And I found myself doing this on the cross-exam in life podcast. And it um, is something that I'm not proud of. But you know, basically you would say something to the other person like, well, in 75% of the cases, public schools have been shown to not meet the standards set for children in grades K through eight. Isn't that true? That I think we can all agree is not a very curious question. It's not really inquiring. It's really just saying like, I want to smush your face in this statistic, basically tag a, isn't that right on the end to get you to agree? No, absolutely. And I was just going to agree with that. So and when we, in linguistics, we study these kind of things and you'll notice is a lot in politics and in anything having to do with any legal environment is that this typically happens and it's, it's quite manipulative there. Even, even when you speak in passive tense, this takes blame away because what it does is 
it gets rid of the subject uh, or it gets rid of the agent in a, in a semantic scenario. So you'll have a subject that belongs to nothing and no one's responsible. And the, the classic example is, you know, mistakes were made as opposed to I made a mistake. Yeah, and, and this happens all the time. And when you're overtly aware of it, you can kind of see what's happening. And lots of us default to that in order to sort of win, a, well, I guess a debate, you know, <laughs> to follow sure. your structure. And it's it's something to think about whenever you engage in a conversation where you have diametrically opposed opinions or just slightly different opinions from another person, do you think that there's ever an appropriate time to debate naturally? Because I would imagine arguing would be the should be the default setting. Yeah. Are you asking if there's ever an appropriate time to kind of argue? To win. Oh, I see. Naturally. To, to kind of have the objective of winning in a conversation. Yes. In an organic conversation, because the way the way, the way way I'm thinking about trying to ask you this question is that you saying arguing is like saying, I believe I'm right, but I want to make sure that you're susceptible to change. But with the debate, you want to win. Right. You know, with, right. So, so, yeah, and I, I can't think of an organic environment where a debate would be important to have. No, no, I can't think of one either. I think it always has to be manual. Manufactured and, and I think that there's a place for that. I mean, for someone like me, you know, I love listening to the podcast Intelligence Squared US. I think they're a fantastic series of debates. And, you know, for anyone who likes kind of gladiatorial combat with words, it's probably the best you could do. Um, sure. One side is going to win and one side is going to lose. And that's because the audience votes. Now, I vote in my head and sometimes I vote different from the audience. And so who they say has won the debate doesn't it's influence the debate. <laughs> exactly. To your point, I don't think that debate kind of arises as a natural conversation because that assumes that you're basically trying to prove the other person wrong and you're not open to change. We can't really ever be informed enough to be in a position where we're not willing to change. As soon as someone says, I know for sure, or it is definitely the case that I start getting very squeamish and very nervous for that person thinking, oh boy, pride comes before the fall. They're about to get knocked on their head because, you know, there's just so much that we don't know. And so I really look at a thoughtful, respectful argument as an opportunity to advance a position you believe, but also learn your vulnerabilities and learn the things you don't know. The, to touch a little bit on those types of people that are that believe they have something completely down and that they're not susceptible to change, I find, and I want to ask if you find this is the same, that they're often rhetoricians and have these words and these structures that they default to to try to disarm you. Yes, I do find that, although I have to say I think it's unconscious. I do too. Uh, I find the people who do that aren't malicious they don't strike me as conniving, as someone who's trying to get the upper hand. Mm-hmm. But I, I see them slipping in these words and these phrases and these, you know, Latin words sometimes to, as you said, just disarm the competition and make you feel less than and then right. kind of stop competing and they win by default. Right. But, and, and to them, I don't want to other people, but to people that use this, even regardless of whether it's malicious or not, it's that is winning in that mindset. And that's very strange because no progress has been made. And it's real. that brings me circled back to why it's very important to argue appropriately, because if you love being right that much, then why not be sure you're right first? It's very strange to have to say that out loud, but being proven wrong just means you can be right later. Right. Well, I think more people are interested in appearing to be right than being actually right. Uh, And I think that we see that note clearer than in the case of our current president, Mr. Trump, um, that to him, appearing to be right is infinitely more important than actually being right. No, I'm right there with you. I I would ask, 
what not that this not that i'm assuming that this is <laughs> your domain at all but like dealing with these types of people is it worth our time to try so my response is going to make you think i'm a terrible person but i did some online dating and every hour that I spent on the online dating website, I had to make crucial decisions about whether the person I was interacting with was a good use of my time or whether I needed to ditch them and move on. <laughs> I, I think and that's I, kind of the point, Chris. That's I, the, I don't blame you for, I think, you for that. Oh, I think it's really similar in the sort of online forum, social media world where things are being debated and discussed. You have to make a decision at every minute, every hour, if this person is wasting your time and is not worth it, it's not worth the investment moving forward, or if there might be some traction there and if there could be a reason for sticking around. And for those, I think it's lovely to move those offline and say, hey, you know, I've been enjoying how we've been engaging here. Can we talk over email or can we schedule a time to Skype or, you know, maybe you just move it to a private message and, you know, you kind of go at it over private message. But I really think there are a lot of big wastes of time out there in terms of those conversations. And I think, I don't know, people who appreciate argument and people who appreciate the role of words and language can easily spot those people who are just out there to win. I think we owe it to ourselves to name them and identify them and say, that's great if you want to live your life that way, but I don't have the time or resources to continue engaging and I'm just going to move on. (laughs) I got you. No, and I I think that that's absolutely true if it is a truly one-on-one conversation, but given the dynamic of how public everything is within these scenarios, would you say that it is a good or progressive idea to properly argue or properly discuss so that the audience that sees it can make a fair decision? Yes, I think that you don't want to get bogged down, you know, without taking too much of your time, but I think sure. as an initial matter, you could have and probably in some sense owe it to the community that you're a part of to show them what a, you know, strong position statement looks like. And that might include bullets, it might include numbered statements, it might include a few definitions, it might even include a few questions for the other side. But to show them, like, this is what thoughtful, respectful debate can look like, I yearn for that. I think we need more of that in everyday life and to the extent that people who do care about language and the role of words and the role of arguments and provide that example, I I think we're doing our brothers and sisters a favor in those forums. I agree. And it's it's like you said, it's to me, obviously, I have a massive passion for words and st- language structure and the, the, the phenomenon of language. Um, and I think it's just incredibly important that we convey meaning properly. And I really think cross-exam has something for us there, especially since we never convey what we mean, or I guess I should say we rarely convey what we mean in the heat of of an argument or especially in the heat of a debate. And I provide one of my takeaway tips from episode one. Absolutely, <laughs> please. At one point during the cross-exam, uh, I said something that I regretted and then I you know, failed to sort of own it. And the tip that I came up with uh, that I think could help all of us in conversations and disagreements is if you said something that you regret saying, own that you didn't like it either. Sure. that it wasn't you at your best. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be the form of an apology. You know, it could be saying like, that wasn't me doing my best, or I wasn't very proud of myself in that moment when I said that. Sure. Um, and I think that that really helps the other side believe in the process more and believe that if they continue engaging with you, 
you may be productive and advance the ball because there's this uh, honesty and vulnerability present. Right, because initially using that format, even if you're not say you don't announce, I am now about to use cross-exam as a format in this discussion. So if you, even if you don't overtly yell it out that way to them, using that, they're going to immediately be, like you said earlier in the discussion where we were talking about uh, you and your wife t- talking, and it said where it's it's – it's alarming and it becomes quite defensive. The, the opponent becomes quite defensive. So if you mess up, if you stray from your from this sort of argument, it's very important to self-correct because if you don't, in their minds, you will have thrown the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Exactly. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you, do you how often do you just agree with the strong stances on your show? Um, and then just poke holes with them anyway. Probably 75% of the time. Wow. That, I mean, there's some really interesting, I would say, I would say for the folks at home that are obviously going to go listen to your show at this point after this episode airs, for the folks at home, there are some mostly agreeable standpoints, but I have found some that have kind of flipped the switch on me on, on some of those that I haven't actually considered, um, especially with, uh, regarding the episode where the gentleman thinks that there should be no voting age. And I had thought this was absurd until I heard the man speak. And frankly, I was convinced on a lot of his points because he was, I had never thought of that. So it's it's like, not only is the, does the structure bring, the cross-exam structure bring about some of these topics that I maybe wouldn't have discussed, but it also gives a, a format or a, a, oh gosh, a pedestal for people to be able to properly convey how they believe it because it's very easy to straw man people with some, with some kind of argument like that. Exactly. And I'm so glad that that was a sort of transformative episode for you. I know it was for me too. And, you know, going into it, I was confident that I was going to disagree with him. And by the end, I think I was basically convinced. Yeah, no, what, I, I don't mean to go on a tangent, just talk about the episode, but it's what, what got me so much is that the the preventative laws don't prevent very much statistically. So having having laws that, that exist out, out of theory that don't work in practice, I think is is not useful. And I think that was ultimately what 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 got me with this point is this just that nothing matter any scenario that that you presented, he would just say, well, it wouldn't it wouldn't matter because that's a ridiculous scenario that probably wouldn't happen. Five year olds can't be can't have people that uh, can't vote because their parents can't go in the voting booth with them. And if they do vote, it might be for a red square. And it just, you know, it's just like no, nothing mad, nothing would be statistically bad about it. Sure, sure. And we also have the episode, I think it was uh, 17 or 18, about intellectual property and why it can't exist philosophically and for that reason why it should not be protected. And that's a highly right. controversial issue. I mean, sure. it's really the foundation of almost all of kind of academic, you know, philosophy and sociology. I mean, these people only right because they believe that their ideas will be cited and protected and you know right. a way of sort of making money and to to say that those things aren't protected and shouldn't be protected is is highly controversial but i think by the end of that episode i was left thinking wow there's not a single flaw in the argument advancing that position i can't possibly think of what right i felt that got wrong <laughs> and, and you know it's funny because like regarding that particular issue i i don't think that if we, if we use the well if we take a look at elon musk the tesla and spacex um the ceo of those companies he if i'm familiar if i'm correct in this I've heard that he doesn't actually trademark or copyright or patent um, most of the key engineering in his vehicles in Tesla because he wants competition and he has not not made money from it. So it's an idea. So sure. just the ideas 
once taken, which I liked that she said, once ideas are taken from you, they are still your idea. It's it's not physical. I, I, I was like, I've never stopped to think about that analogy, that my shoes once stolen are stolen, but if my idea is stolen, I, it was not it's still there, you know, it's still yeah, there. Yeah. It's interesting. Exactly. So you said that about 75% of the time you, do you start agreeing with, do you start out agreeing with these people 75% of the time or do you end up agreeing with them 75% of the time? That's a good distinction. I'd say I probably end up agreeing with them 75% of the time in terms of starting points. Let's say at least half to maybe two thirds of the time I start off completely in agreement with my guest thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to cross-examine this person? Because I agree with every word coming out of their mouth. And uh, I try to just rack my brains to think of all the things that someone might cross-examine them on and try to come up with them as hard as I can. No, that's that's super cool. It's actually um, a really rad thing. Uh, and I was, to bring it back to language a little bit, I like looking at the format and the way you talk to people and the way that they speak back to you, I found them to be insanely articulate. And I noticed at the beginning of your show, you say that their credentials shouldn't matter, which I like, um, and that should be the strength of their argument by itself that should hold the weight. And... But I can't help but notice that these people are not off the street sounding um, about these opinions. And I, I would imagine that's due to them being so very passionate about that strongly held belief. Is that the case? Yes. I think that the majority of people I interview, the position they take is not one that is part of their profession. In just a small minority of the cases, I've actually interviewed people who do philosophy for a living. In the overwhelming majority of cases, it's people who have a day job that's completely unrelated to philosophy and is unrelated to the point they're defending. And here's the key. They just happen to love reading about it and watching YouTube videos about it and text head talks about it in their spare time. And it's those things that we all feel passionate about that we could all get up on a soapbox at any moment and start talking about. And I really believe we all have them. And, you know, people have said to me before, oh, I couldn't be a guest on your show. I have no idea what I would talk about. I just want to wag my finger at them and say, that's not true. There's one or two things that you love reading about and you love posting about. And if the retribution on Facebook was not bad, you would post about this topic all the time because you just can't get enough of it. Let's talk about that issue. Now, I want to ask you a quick couple last questions. I want to say, what's the most epiphany-inducing episode that you've uh, recorded so far? I have to say it's episode number 11. And in a lot of ways, I think that's about the time that the podcast started coming into its own and taking the best shape that it has today. Um, And episode 11 dealt with the word terrorism and whether or not we use the word terrorism at inappropriate times and in inappropriate ways. And I had never thought before that there was anything wrong with the ways and times that I and society uses the word terrorism, that it just kind of naturally comes up when someone's kind of attacked without reason and usually if there's some sort of religious motive at stake. Terrorism. Easy. Simple. What my guest challenged me on was saying, what evidence do we have that this is terrorism? Why do we assume that because, let's say, someone of Muslim faith is involved, that it's necessarily a terrorist act? Might that just be a coincidence? And the answer is yes, it might. And why do we say that when it's someone of Middle Eastern descent? 
might that just be a coincidence? Again, it might. It's probably even larger. And, you know, if this person has brown skin, I mean, how many times has someone who's, you know, Latino or from some other culture been mistaken for someone of Middle Eastern descent um, for, you know, absolutely no good reason? And so my guests really challenged me to think about how and why we use the word terrorism and help me see that in so many ways and times we're using it um, basically just jumping to conclusions without any hard evidence. Yikes. I haven't I haven't had the I actually haven't listened to episode 11. I th- I'd say I would I've listened to probably episode 14 on cuz I actually found you um your podcast from a Sleep Talk podcast um, okay. that I listened to and I was referred to over there to you and it was really glad I found that. And because it's a fantastic series, and I'm going to have to go back and listen to episode 11 now, I think. Because okay, okay. I think I'm probably pretty guilty of using terrorism. Using words in such a way that you take away the validity of the word in itself is also sort of a pretty big issue with us. A lot of the, a lot of the things we've been running into recently would be people the word violence right so a lot of people are now equating being insulted with being violently attacked and i think that that takes away from uh, actual violence so punching someone is violent telling someone that you know the holocaust didn't happen isn't violent however horrible and inappropriate it might be Uh, but there's a lot of equation to that now and i think that it takes away some importance to certain words and i'm all for words changing but we certainly need to make sure that we have an appropriately severe word to take its place sure i agree with you can i blame linguists for just a moment for the fault that you just identified i have heard the phrase does this do violence to language or to the sentence more times than i've heard violence taken out of context in other ways and I perhaps literally, I, yeah, I have never <laughs> heard that. So I'm super intrigued by it. Oh. That's insane. I've never heard that before. And I mean, insane as in that I've never heard that before. Not that it's, well, I guess it, to me, that sounds pretty inappropriate use of violence, but. Okay. I'm sorry that I don't have a better example right That's now. Okay. That's all right. I, I was just more mostly flabbergasted at that, but I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I, I truly want to hear what you were going to say. No, no, not at all. Just that I think that some people talk about the way that the improper use of language kind of is an act of violence towards language oh Um, that is not linguist chris that's gotta be somebody (laughs) Uh, any 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 person who would say that they're a linguist and studies descriptive linguistics whether under the umbrella of any of the four subdisciplines morphology syntax semantics phonology or whether you know they study pragmatics any of the actual sciences of linguistics would never say something that using language a certain way is wrong. Okay. The only wrong language is language that's not understood. That's linguistics. So yep. I hear what you're describing as more like literature or English advocates or, or analysts. Yeah, I think you're probably right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause, sure. Because typically a lot of people, when they hear the word linguist, they hear, oh, you speak a bunch of languages or you must really hate when people use language incorrectly. And I always say, well, uh, one of them is by coincidence and the other is absolutely incorrect and that the only bad language is language that I can't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's typically <laughs> that's typically the, the route we take because the nature of language doesn't allow for us to have correct and incorrect usage other than understood and misunderstood because language must be arbitrary to be understood, which is the nature of the beast. Yeah, it's so true. It's a funny catch-22. It is. It is. This has been awesome, and I really appreciate you coming on to the show to talk to us a little bit about the art of arguing, the art of elevating debate 
through controversial talks via cross-exam. I'm happy to talk about it. Thank you for the space. Chris, uh, do you have anything going on that you want to talk to us about? Well, I'm really excited about Cross-Exam in Life uh, now getting up to uh, 20 episodes. Uh, We've gone 20 consecutive weeks since February 2017. So if you're just starting to listen, you're not too far behind. There's a chance to catch up. And I'll throw out as a special little uh, item of interest for uh, anyone who might be listening to upcoming episodes before the 2016 presidential election. I had a chance to sit down with an ardent supporter of President Trump, and he defended the position that Donald Trump would be the best president for the United States. Uh, This was about a week prior to the election. But that was Uh, super heated. (laughs) It was not as heated as you would think. Oh, for the audience. Not so much for you, I imagine. Well, he had very thoughtful, very respectful ways of making his position known, and I thought we had a really good back and forth. Thing is, this hasn't been published yet. This is not an episode that exists because what I plan to do is go back with him and play important parts of that episode to him where he, you know, said some, you know, more kind of inflammatory things and say, what do you say about this now? Do you stand by this? Do you renege it? Are you doubling down? What's your position? And so I'm very much looking forward to publishing that somewhere between episode 20 and 30. So, you know, for any of your listeners who think that that might be interesting, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the Cross-Examine Life podcast, and you'll have a chance to hear that among all the other sort of controversial issues that we tackle on the show. You can see all those issues and podcast episode titles um, at crossexaminelife.com, and you can also join our Facebook group, the Cross-Examine Life community, uh, where we have discussions about whether or not guests prove their point successfully. No, that's that's actually really intriguing. I know I will be listening and I know most of my listeners will also listen. But Great. yeah, absolutely. So until next time, I guess if you enjoyed the show, drop us a like on our Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash let's talk talk podcast. Or you can just drop us a rating on iTunes, obviously, if you like that too. But until next time, we will see you.